Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. The word horde has entered the English lexicon with a negative connotation, conjuring up images of warriors on horseback, sweeping across the plain, a virtual human flood destroying everything in its path, and then receding, leaving a wave of destruction and grief. Such is often the popular perception of the Mongol Empire under Chinggis Khan and his successors, who came to control much of Eurasia in the mid-13th century. In the past few decades, scholarship has started emphasizing other aspects of the 300-year Mongol project. After all, waves of destruction don't also tend to be referred to by names like Pax Mongolica or the Mongolian Peace. Marie Favreau's new book focuses on the northern Mongol Empire, popularly known as the Golden Horde. The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World, is a magnificent, beautifully written study, easily accessible to non-specialists, that seeks to reintroduce the Jochid Empire, the Golden Horde, to world history and to re-examine its impact and legacy. Marie Favreau is Associate Professor at Paris-Nanterre University. Here's my interview with her. Marie Favreau, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, it's tradition to begin by asking our guests to talk about themselves, where they're from, their background, and what led them to become interested in their field of study. Uh, have you always been interested in Mongol history? Yeah, first of all, hi. Uh, hi, Chris. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm, um, thank you for having me. Um, well, uh, I was, no, I discovered the topic of, you know, the Mongol Empire and Mongolian studies, uh, quite late, actually. Like, I was almost, uh, um, in PhD. Um, so first of all, I'm French from Paris and I did my, uh, undergrad in Paris, La Sorbonne and then my master studied there too. And I, uh, I was, um, uh, studying history, especially Middle Ages. I was very interested in the medieval period. And I was also studying Arabic language and Russian language. And if you put all this together, uh, then you, uh, in a way, uh, come to the, um, uh, Islamization of Russia, this kind of topic. And I thought I would do my PhD on the Islamization of Russia. And I start reading books 
on the um, you know on on the, what we call the golden horde, so the uh, western part of the Mongol Empire, and on uh, on Islam and the process of Islam in Russia. Uh, and I discovered a whole new topic I was never told about uh, the Mongol Empire and the impact of the Mongols on the Russian history. It was so new and so fascinating for me. Uh, so that's so it started then, and um, also I would like to have that. Uh, I wanted to use my skills uh, in Russian and Arabic. So the idea also was to combine my interest in history, specifically like late Middle Ages period, and my uh, interest in language. So I wanted to work on you know these specific sources. So um, yes, that's that's how it started. Okay, uh, so your your first book was about the relationship between, um, as as you mentioned, what what's known as the Golden Horde, or or as uh, you inform us in your book, the the Ulus Chochi, and the Mamluk Sultanates uh, in Egypt. What led you to write a book like this that's that's much broader in scope? Yeah. Um, well, there are uh, there were different steps. So f- first, because uh, my interest was so the the Golden Horde and Islam, I went to uh, different countries for archive uh, archive work uh, and researches, and and uh, because I wanted to meet with um, foreign scholars, so I went to Russia and I uh, also went to Central Asia and to uh, Egypt where I spent actually four years. It was my first job after the PhD, my first uh, postdoctoral job. And uh, there I realized that uh, um, this slave trade network, so this connection between the Mongol Empire and uh, the Mamluk Sultanate, so Egypt and Syria, was extremely interesting and was a very fruitful topic, but I really wanted to understand better the organization of the Golden Horde and the organization of the wide uh, Mongol Empire. So uh, I, after that, I moved, uh, I had the opportunity to work in um, uh, Leiden with uh, great scholars there who uh, uh, were all um, working on uh, different empires but most of these empires were, uh, I can say, um, perhaps sedentary empires, like the Habsburg, uh, and or even Islamic, like late Islamic empires. And uh, I, I realized that uh, I think like co- comparative history is extremely interesting and difficult at the same time. I mean, technically speaking, it's difficult because you have to find a common language, you have to find common. But also it helped me to understand that I needed more tools to understand my own empire, uh, like the Mongol, I mean, the Mongol empire and specifically the nomadic part of the Mongol empire. And I was not uh, really able to understand the nomadic institution in the empire because I was still using at that time um, um, concepts that were developed for sedentary empire or let's say agrarian empires like for the roman empire up to the ottoman empires and those concepts are extremely interesting but they're not so useful for the nomadic empires i think uh so i felt a little bit blocked um in my research and then i was extremely lucky because i i was um offered to uh, work in uh a, a big European project called Nomadic Empires, based in Oxford, and was led by Pekka Hamalain, who's um, an Americanist and uh, who uh, works on the Comanche and the Lakota um, 
uh, empires. So uh, with him and uh, my colleagues there, who were all specialized on different uh, nomadic you know, organizations in history, I start working on different institutions and on, on different approach even of the notion of empire. And that's where everything really starts for me. That was in 2014, 2015. And, um, and I decided to really change completely my approach of the, of the Mongols then. <laughs> okay. So the historian in me uh, is, is fascinated by this book. Um, it's, it's very expansive. It's very clear. It's very beautifully written, uh, especially for a, 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 a history monograph. Um, and I, I, I have to ask, tell me about the source material that you used to compile such a vast project. It's, it's really impressive, the amount of material that you cover in this book. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, uh, it's true. Also, I mean, because I started already doing my PhD, um, uh, this, you know, in a way, project of gathering the sources of um, the Western part of the Mongol Empire, I had, you know, in my, uh, um, I had so many, I had, you know, gathered so many uh, documents already that I felt actually I was really ready to write. Um, I, I liked many the analytical concepts that was the second stage, the one, you know, on what I worked on in, mm -hmm. in, in Oxford. But for the sources themselves, um, first I gathered all the direct, what I would call the direct sources, the direct production of the Mongols in the West. So uh, many administrative documents, uh, coins, um, inscriptions, everything that was produced directly by the state or by the Mongol mm -hmm. salary. And the first important thing to understand is that they, uh, they were not specifically in Mongolian language. So because it was an empire, the Mongols really very early on were open to the language of their subject. So they were um, hiring people in their chancery to produce documents in the languages of their subject. So for the Horde, it means documents uh, produced in Russian, also in Latin, Persian, um, Turkic, of course, also. So uh, the idea was really to gather all those documents and then to compare them because they... Um, um, I, well, they show uh, a vocabulary that is uh, probably Mongolian, but um, most of all, that is a, um, um, it's an imperial vocabulary, imperial terminology, imperial administrative terms that you, really, that you will find in all those documents. Um, so like, you know, things related to tamga, uh, the seal, also the tax on trade, uh, this word you will find in even in Italian and Persian documents or, or Russian. So um, yeah, this 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 work on the language was um, the first work I've done, and uh, it was a uh, really uh, long and but also very interesting. That's one thing. The other thing is um, when you work on the Mongols, I think it's really important to open up to other kind of documentation, and I mean here like object archaeology. Uh, even if I'm a historian by formation and really, really historian, I really wanted to have um, the, you know, archaeological reports done by colleagues 
um, uh, Russian colleagues mainly. I wanted to read their publication. I wanted to see archaeological sites. So seeing the landscape also, I uh, realized that was extremely important. So that is also really part of my documentation. And it's important because it gives you, uh, you feel closer to the nomads also, to the way they live. Um, when you see the landscape, when you see the object they have in their burials. So um, the human side of, 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 uh, of history is very important too. So at the end, I was open to any kind of new, um, you know, materials. Uh, and I would say that um, also if you, in my book, uh, what I use a lot is um, uh, coins, coinage. Uh, and But I use it probably... Not only for you know economic history, I think it's very interesting to use coins for um, uh, religious history, for uh, politics too. Um, so I use, I really try to use coins in my way. Um, and uh, and the Mongols left, um, you know, produced. Um, sorry so many, I mean, thousands and thousands of coins. So I thought that it was very important to take this into account as well. Yeah. So uh, that's, um, well, that's uh, the way I worked on, on, on this project. So try to be, you know, open on, you know, all these different kind of sources. And when I can't read them, so for, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not really at ease with Persian language, for instance, and I worked also with colleagues uh me and we compared with you know other documents uh so it's there's a uh, i should say it really right now there's a collective aspect in this work clearly i mean when you work on this kind of topic you you work with very you know very closely with with colleagues all around the world and it's also very important for me yes uh in your introduction uh you propose the idea of the the Mongol exchange as a term to describe what historians uh, have often referred to as the Pax Mongolica. Um, and I think that uh, many of our readers will be familiar with Janet Abu Logod's uh, work Before European Hegemony, which was one of the first uh, sort of mainstream works to really promote the idea of this era of relative stability during the period from the, the mid-13th to the mid-14th century, when much of Eurasia was under Mongol control. So um, what is the Mongol exchange as you conceive of it? And why do you prefer the, it as a unit of analysis over, say, Pax Mongolica? Well, yeah, that's um, um, an important point uh, in my book. So the thing is, uh, first, I work with the um, a more common um, um, term um, for for this period, uh, which is um, Mongol peace, Pax Mongolica. Um, it's you know the way we are used to describe this um, uh, century of um, um, fruitful exchanges. I mean, not only fruitful fruitful exchanges, but I mean least trade energy um, uh, and, and, more, and it's more than that even exchange in terms of you know knowledge and technologies and and sadly also in disease too uh, and so I um, the, the point was when you work on Mongol peace you use the term Mongol peace and you uh, have to explain that the Mongols were not specifically at peace among themselves at that time 
and also something that is important, um, I think, um, is that you we tend to see uh, empire, imperial history as okay. First, first step, conquest. Second step, administration and organization. While, in fact, actually, in, in, uh, for the Mongols, uh, and, and prob- not only for the Mongols, probably, but uh, it's all mixed. So they start the conquest. The conquest will, would last for more than a century. So it's a very, very long process over three, four generations. And during the conquest, they also organize, administrate. So it's all, um, it goes together. So I, I didn't like the idea of the Mongol peace because the idea was like, okay, after the conquest, there's a peace, uh, which is not clear. When you look at the sources, there are still, you know, a lot of, you know, small wars here and there, like uh, tensions on the frontiers. So it's not really appropriate. And also uh, I worked, uh, I tried to understand how the Mongol uh, envision uh, the peace. What is peace for them? What is, you know... A, a peaceful state of, of, of things. And um, it's clearly uh, their order. So it's, it's an, the idea for them is when, when subjects um, accept their, their economic, political, spiritual order, well, then there's, there's, there's peace in a way. So um, I, I realized that the uh, important aspect was more um, the submission to the Mongol order and the submission to their economic order as well. Um, so I uh, came up with this idea of exchange. It was already there because um, colleagues, um, several colleagues I have in mind, of course, now uh, Timothy May, uh, in his book on on the Mongol Empire and the the, con- the Mongol conquest in uh, world history, um, developed already the idea of uh, Genghis uh, exchange. Uh, it was there in other books under the, the, the probably the term of like Mongolian or, or Mongolian exchange, but um, so it was there already. So I, I decided to um, to keep it because it was um, it helped me to understand that. What the Mongol created, this big, huge economic and political and spiritual order, was much bigger than the empire. That it lasted longer and it reached countries that were not in the Mongol Empire, just like Western Europe, for instance. Western Europe was um, uh, involved in the Mongol exchange, but not in the Mongol Empire. You see, so it was uh, very interesting to use a term that could help us to understand that there was a difference between what the Mongol created, launched as an, you know, order or a form of globalization, and uh, the state they created, which you know, it's it's they both were connected, but they are not the same. So um, that's why I, I came up with this uh, with this uh, idea of, of the Mongol um, uh, the Mongol exchange. And in my book, what is very specific and different from other books on the Mongol um, Empire and its um, you know economic reach is the fact that I focus on the north and I show that the whole the northern part of the Mongol Empire was a um, leader in this big Mongol exchange phenomenon. So, um, so that also, I, I felt free to develop my um, uh, way uh, of, of thinking, my own tools of uh, analysis when I move, when I run 
out, I mean, left, you know, this term of Mongol peace, like Pax Mongolica, you know, behind. And, um, and, and this is also something I worked on with my colleagues from the nomadic empires and decided that we really have to reflect on the terms we use and we be free to, you know, use new terms as soon as we, you know, explain them. And, and it's, uh, I think they are good tools for debates also with, with colleagues. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a really good point. Um, and, uh, and and the fact that you are focusing on on the north, which is the the section of the Mongol state that was controlled by Ulus Jochi, um, which they called Orda, or as we know it, the Horde, um, you describe it as being a power of of a new kind. And um, so, I, I have a two part question here. One is. Um, how how so when we, when we describe it as a power of a new kind? How what was new about it? And then um, the next question is that what uh, have historians traditionally missed or perhaps not fully appreciated in the way that they have approached it and described it in the past? Well. Yeah, that's um, of course a, a, a crucial point uh, for for my research. Uh, I mean, this book is um, titled "The Horde," and it's not by chance. Uh, it's really, uh, the thing is, uh, the term itself, uh, under you know, um, the, shaped like "order" or "do," uh, is uh, 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 was invented much earlier than you know uh, the Mongols. It was used before by the Kitan, but even much before by the Turks, and even before we see it in the Chinese sources for the Han early Han period. So the term was there, and it was connected to a different form of nomadic organization. The thing is, uh, for long historians uh, focused on the military aspect of the nomadic uh, organization because I think um, uh, that in the sedentary sources produced for example by the Chinese or by the you know Persian uh, secretaries the nomads were you know always on the military side never really on the administrative side or uh, literate side of uh, um, you know societies which is yeah, their point of view, and uh, I think um, uh, I really wanted to deconstruct that. Uh, I think that the um, uh, Mongols and the nomads were very, uh, very good in organization. They were really able to um, organize complex, you know, um, governments, uh, chancery states uh, on the back of their horses in a way or in their tents. But I mean, they, you don't need to be um, 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 an urban you know, citizen to uh, think the states and to um, uh, um, shape a, a state organization. So uh, that's, um, and, and in connection with Horde, so the term itself was translated often as, you know, military camp or military headquarter. Um, but when you dig into the sources, you realize um, that it was often connected to, um like the women households, uh, large camp organization, uh, uh, administration. Uh, so then you come up with a very different idea of what a horde 
or that or those so of course um we it depends on the on the um, on you know the the powers like for the kitan it was a little bit different but for the mongols clearly the um, horde means um um a very complex set of organization of institutions and uh it was not only connected to the military to yeah to the military organization um, and uh, so I uh, realized this and then I um, and things became really clear then when I understood that for the Mongols the Horde was the real um, um, the Han city so like the capital that the capital that the main city that the uh, the center of their uh, state and organizational empire was not the uh, um, you know, sedentary city in a way, but the mobile one, and that's a horde. So um, uh, this is really something that helped me to understand their organization and to understand the way they 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 move they moved as well. So uh, the fact that um, the nomads are mobile, fine, we all know that. But uh, in, in how are they? I mean, is this a different kind of mobility? Is it the same as, you know, the one that sedentary rulers had? Because we know that sedentary rulers moved a lot. So uh, it's um, so it was very interesting for me to work on uh, the uh, mobile in institutions of, of, uh, of the Mongols, developed by the Mongols. And then I, I realized how, um, you know, uh, seasonal they were. You know how how they move. So I work on their movement, how the predictable the court was in in its movements, uh, like going you know north uh, along the river, uh, especially the Volga River um, during um, uh, summertime, and how they would go uh, south uh, during um, uh, winter time. And it's, it gives you an idea of you know the um, seasonality of the empire and on the way they govern. Uh, and and the way they move, so they don't move like everywhere, and it's like it's very um, organized. Uh, so my idea was to deconstruct this concept of uh, horde, uh, the way we we are used to, um, you know, understand it today, like you know, disorganization, violence, um, you know, bench of people. Well, I came up with the uh, other way around, like the country. You know, it's extremely organized. It's not violent inside. It has to be really peaceful and extremely, you know, a, a lot of discipline. Um, it's uh, not only about an army. It's also very much about administration, a craftsman, um, religious man. I mean, you know, um, women and children. So I came up with a different, very different story. And then I didn't expect that, really, honestly. The other thing I would like to say is it's, it's funny because the term itself, although we know it existed before in the East, in the West, uh, and even in Russia, it really appeared in the sources in the 13th century. So when the Mongol came, um, in the, in the, the eyewitnesses, uh, kept the, the word horde. So in Latin, in Russian, in Persian, in Arabic, it's all over the place. And they didn't translate it. They didn't try really. Sometimes they try to explain a little bit, but usually they keep it. And that's, I was fascinated by that. I was like, oh, wow, it's uh, for them too, for those sedentary eyewitnesses, it's 
they see it as a new form of, you know, you know, kind of power, a new form of organization. And they don't have the, and they don't have a word to say it. Um, so to translate it into, so they keep hoard. And I thought that was really, uh, really fantastic. Yes. To see that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I think one of the most striking things about the section where you're describing the this mobile encampment is um, exactly what, you, what you've been talking about is, is the organization and the fact that no matter where the settlement would appear, it was organized exactly the same. So it would have the same layout, things would be in the same place. So it would be new landscape but very familiar and i i i think that's something that that we don't necessarily appreciate when we think about uh uh the mongols or even any sorts of nomads because you um at at points you you compare them to other nomadic uh, societies even uh native american societies and and i think we just don't think about those sorts of things when we when they're popularly discussed. Part of the unique character of the Horde uh, was the way that it descended from the early Mongol state that was established by Chinggis Khan, uh, which was not only unique at the time, uh, but the Horde was also unique among the four uh, Ulus that his uh, empire was divided between. So how did the Horde develop into the state that it eventually became? Well, that's a, a very important point too, and that's also a very complex question, in fact, because um, I, in my work, I had uh, two ideas that um, that were very um, um, that I, you know, um, uh, kept going back to when I was writing. Uh, one is that the horde is really part of the Mongol Empire, and that this vision we have. Uh, of the Mongol Empire separated into four, sometimes five parts, can be misleading, and it can be sometimes because the Mongols conceive themselves as part of the whole. So even if they are at war, if they are in, you know, they are conflict. It's the same world, and they are, you know, common rules. And I really wanted to show that in my book, but at the same time, there are uh, some, you know, specific aspects. Um, in the uh, in the horde in the north uh, in this Jochid regime, so the Jochid, the, the name um, that we give to the um, um, uh, ruling family that you know uh, governed the horde for um, three centuries. So uh, uh, if we think about 
um, the what is different, you know, the, the distinctiveness of the hoard if you compare with the other uh, other parts. I would say that the first thing uh, that comes to my mind now is really the location, the fact that uh, the ecology of the of the area. So the fact that they had the Georgian had to move from what is Mongolia today to uh, Western Russia, northwestern Russia. Uh, this is this migration is a key uh, is a key thing because it will explain how they have to develop differently, why they have to adapt themselves. How so? Then yeah, that's the first the starting point, um, uh, and I think it's it's really um, uh, it's it explains why um, the in the whole the Georgians, the Mongols there ruled differently than in the uh, south of the Mongol Empire, like uh, China, if you want to speak in, in mo- modern terms, and Iran today. So it was different because it was the north, and uh, their frontiers uh, also with the sedentary population was different. So they were in direct contact with uh Eastern and Central Europeans. Uh, they had a lot of contact with uh, Italians, uh, with even uh, French and, and uh, uh, also Northern um, European peoples, uh, German peoples. And so uh, this specific European frontier uh, also explain why the Horde had to develop, you know, different ways. Um, that's um, one important thing. And uh, also, uh, they were more trade-oriented than um, the uh, the other Mongols. There are different reasons uh, that I can explain that. So um, if I can, you know, explain very briefly, one is that they could not rely on... Um, um, on, on ag- uh, agrarian productivity. So if you compare with China and Iran, the production, agrarian production, so the, the, yeah, um, grain production was not, uh, the same in, uh, in, in the north. So they had to, um, combine with, uh, other uh, sources of, of revenue, of income. So that's uh, one explanation. Also, the climate was very different. Uh, so the connection when it's very cold and there's snow or, uh, or when there's mud in spring are not the same. They're not so always easy. So they don't have the same connection. And the Mongols uh, in the Horde really lived uh, next to the Russian principalities, but not uh, really uh, close, uh, very, very close to them. They're not... They don't really have this uh, very direct way of governing that they developed in the country in the in the east, in China or you know, or in the Iran Azerbaijan region. So they developed their own ways, and uh, I argue in my book that this explains why probably this regime, the Georgian regime, the Horde regime, lasted longer because actually they had um, they went less, you know. Uh, present, you know, in everyday life for Russian, um, you know, peasants, the Mongols were not, you know, were not there. So they had, you know, enough space to organize themselves, uh, you know, not too close to their uh, sedentary subjects. And that's uh, clearly, you know, helped uh, the good relations that they were able to develop with, with, uh, especially with uh, the Russian uh, 
citizens, but also with, you know, other subjects like Italians and Armenians and others. So uh, it was uh, differently organized. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I would say it's, all, uh, it's like almost a second point is technologies of governance that were different and more, you know, in a way indirect than in the South. Uh, and finally, I think that um, the way also, well, that's something that is still, um, in a way, uh, not a question, but it's 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 a very very interesting. The fact that they um, develop, they let let's say that the rulers in the horde uh, uh, converted to Islam really early on. I mean, the first Mongol ruler converted to Islam was Berke, Jochid Khan, and it was already uh, in the mid-13th century, so it was very early on. But they were able still to maintain a very good you know, balance with the other religious uh, communities in their territories in the West. So they had very good relationship with the Christians. And when I say Christians, you know, I include Orthodox uh, Catholics, like missionaries, Franciscan and Dominican missionaries. Uh, they were also Armenians. They also had good relationship with the Jewish communities, based mainly in Lower Volga and Crimea. And they really found, were able to find a good balance and um, you know, and not we, we don't see so many religious clashes. In fact, uh, that's interesting uh, in the in the in the horde uh, territories. And uh, they um, were also very early on tried to find um, um, kind of middle ground between Islamic uh, theory of power or Islamic, you know, um, everyday life organization and uh, Mongol. Uh, or nomadic ways of, you know, uh, um, organizing, you know, everyday life or um, um, also um, uh, sense of property and stuff like that. So this combination they were able to make between uh, Islam and um, um, Mongol way of, you know, doing uh, is is kind of. It, First of all, it's the first, the early, the earliest uh, attempt to do that, to do to combine them, uh, two approaches of you know, you know, society. But uh, but it was quite uh, successful in a way, and much successful, much more balanced, much more peaceful than in uh, in, in the Ilkhanate in the south. So um, uh, and this you, it's hard to explain like in in a few words. But if you look at you know, the process of Islamization, it was like a very long and, you know, uh, um, uh, process. So uh, they didn't force conversion or stuff like that. It's not at all the way they governed. And uh, so the fact that, you know, they were, they have, they developed this politics of toleration, religious toleration, also for pragmatic reasons and everything, uh, is, is also very uh, specific and I mean, it's specific to the Mongols, but it worked very well somehow in the Horde, in the West, and much better than in the South of the Empire. So that's, yeah, the other, uh, I think, distinctive uh, point, uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, well, I, I think now also that, um, as to, to conclude on this, what is very specific with the Horde is the way they developed the uh, northern connection in Eurasia, the way they integrate 
um, Siberia into the uh, global Eurasian uh, network of exchange. I think that's that worked also. That that was really um, um, yeah something uh, extremely impressive to see, and that also um, uh, they benefited also from the uh, difficulties uh, the Mongols had in the south with the you know uh, maritime trade routes, um, um, you know internal conflicts in the Ilkhanate when. The, the Mongols in the south had troubled with the southern routes, while then the Mongols in the north were able to develop the northern routes. So that's also uh, something very uh, specific to the Horde. And I think one of the, the things that very much comes across, and you, you've alluded to it here, is that uh, the success of the Horde um, it came about, as you put it, not in spite of their nomadism, uh, but because of it, um, as you mentioned, they're living apart from the sedentary population and sort of uh, only intervene when they have to. But otherwise, things are just sort of uh, left um, without, you know, constant control and oversight, um, which uh, seems to have eased re- uh, the relationship there somewhat. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. The the way the nomads uh, control, the way they do it, the way they control territory, the way they control people is very interesting and very specific to, to them. Um, the fact that even if they leave the part, they know each other. So the Mongols, for instance, ask the... So we think if we really focus on the horde, uh, the Han there would ask the Russian princes to come and visit the um, Han's court, the ruler's court, uh, right uh, um, often. And would and the, the Russian princes would stay months, sometimes years, at the Han's court. So uh, there's this idea that they need to meet uh, face-to-face, they need to know each other like really closely, but at the same time, there are also moments when, you know, it's seasonality. They don't need to, you know, be together um, all the time. They don't need to send Mongol envoys to the Russian principalities, for instance, uh, all the time. Just at some point, certain moments, uh, they come uh, to the Russian cities. But um, this, uh, it's it's really uh, fascinating to see how they uh, exert their control. So it's the control is there. They know that they are the master, and they know how to remind their subject that they are the masters. But they also they are also supple, and they also um, rely on. Um, um, agreements, negotiations, discussions, exchange, really very much. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I have to um, recall this but uh, or to underline this, but they were always um, um, outnumbered. I mean, if you compare with this subject, the Mongols, are, are, there are thousands and sometimes a million of, of um, uh, warriors, but most of the time they are really less... Um, yeah, uh, and, and less people. Uh, if you look at the nomadic side, <laughs> uh, if you compare with the peasants and with the cities, but they have their way to, you know, show themselves, surprise people, uh, and uh, use, you know, uh, yes, they use surprise, and also they understand extremely well the the landscape. 
Uh, they understand geography very well. They know where uh, what I call doors are or gates for trade. So it can be like a bridge over a river or, you know, a, you know, um, um, checkpoints. Uh, it can be like a, de- like a Detroit uh, Straits between two seas. So they know where they have to show themselves the way the places that are, must be controlled directly and all the time. But for the rest, they don't feel that they need to be uh, there all the time or they don't have this notion of, you know, uh, how can I put that? Like, you know, the way they own, they own the land in a way, but it's not like, you know, private properties neither. It's, it's very different approach of, um, you know, uh, of the land. And I really try to, to explain that in the book. And, um, and yeah, so, uh, at, at the end, I think that's, uh, where it's important to remind, um, um, you know, the reader that these, uh, women nomads until the end, and that's how they, uh, build their powers, you know, by using, not only mobility, but the way they develop the control of, you know, populations and, you know, um, um, lands and territories and, you know, uh, uh, travels, also routes, uh, how they controlled routes, um, also uh, how they provide protections uh, in, you know, some places, um, how they open up, you know, um, um, uh, trade gateways for some people, close them when they want, you know, this. Uh, and this is not um, specific to the Mongols. This is something um, I really rely when I work with uh, other people working on, you know, other forms of nomadic uh, powers and organizations. And uh, it's it's really something that the Mongols are good at. I mean, nomads, sorry, are good at, you know, controlling, you know, um, um, uh, not being everywhere all the time, but they, it looked like they are everywhere at the same time all the time. So it's it's uh, very interesting to 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 read that in the sources how they impressed the sedentary by you know their mobility, how they are swift and quick, and um, and you don't cross them, you don't know where they are, and you know so they play on that a lot. Yes. Um, yeah, well, that's um, that's something important indeed. Yeah. So um, you, you've touched on 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 the, the relationship between uh, the Mongols and uh, their Russian subjects, um, but even though the Horde occupied much of the territory that that becomes what we now think of as Russia, and and in the twentieth century, the Soviet Union, including. Siberia and the Central Asian republics. Uh, the way that Russian historians in particular have, have treated that period of Russian history has been somewhat influential in the way that the Horde has been perceived, um, not only in Russian history, but also in, in other European languages. Um, in particular is the grappling with the fact that not only were the Mongols foreign, they were also Muslim. Um, but as with other aspects of Mongol scholarship, this is starting to evolve now, and, and I, I, I'm going to quote you um, here, which is, you said that the question now is not how Russia survived the Horde, but how the Horde helped to create modern Russia. So how does this new evolving understanding begin to clarify this historical relationship between the Horde and what becomes Russia afterwards? Well, 
Yeah, that's um, uh, something also that I really wanted to work on this um, very important relationship with um, what we call Russia today, but the, for, from the, the Middle Ages, we would call uh, Russia more like Russian principalities. There are a lot of frag- political fragmentation, although there are also uh, some ideas of, you know, uh, cultural unity uh, at the same time. Uh, my idea in this book was not certainly not to focus on, on the Russian principalities, but I had really to acknowledge the fact that the Russian were probably one the most important subjects for uh, the Mongols of the Horde. And uh, the Hordes really, um, the, the rulers, the judged rulers were really, uh, uh, for them was really important that the Russian princes were uh, remain at peace, that they pay tribute, but also that they, you know, remain productive, they remain, um, in, um, they integrated them into the wider trade network of Eurasia, even, and especially in the Islamic Central Asian trade networks. And, uh, and they really want to really try even to force them, to force the Russian to accept new trade rules. Uh, so they were very important. Uh, at some point for the Mongols, they became really important, the, the Russians. And um, I, uh, this appears, I mean, not uh, immediately in the 13th century, but at the end of the 13th century, it became clear that, you know, um, the Mongols really uh, were really interested in what was happening in the Russian principalities. And um, also, uh, I think it's it was made clear by um, a few scholars well before me that the uh, Mongols uh, were really uh, enabled in a way the rise of the House of Moscow that they really uh, that they took part in the creation in the um, uh, Danilovich dynasty uh, that they supported Alexander Nevsky and you know uh, other important. Um, uh, princes uh, of the House of Moscow, the, uh, and that actually what we call the Mongol yoke. So this very negative uh, image of the Mongol domination of Russia was developed uh, later on, much later than in the 13th-14th century. Probably, many in the um, it started only at the end of the 15th century, and in, in rather in the 16th and 17th centuries. And this was um, really, I mean, we have wonderful publication on that, you know, by Donostrovsky, by Charles Harpreen, and others. So I thought that it was really clear. Uh, but uh, what I uh, really wanted to show in my book is that. Um, the Mongols not only changed the, in a way, the political system of the Russian principalities, but it also changed their economic reach. Uh, I really wanted to show how they allowed them really to be part of uh, of the wider Mongol order, economic order, and uh, and I wanted to show that by being part of uh, of the Mongol Empire, the Russian benefited a lot. Um, because they benefited of tax exam- exemptions for, um, you know, uh, religious elitesmen, for princes also, and you know they could develop a lot of, um, uh, they could uh, build, you know, um, s- stone buildings or you know churches and and develop their cities. Uh, they had really uh, not only, I mean, they had rather good treatment in a way in that sense 
And uh, I thought that it was very important to make it clear for, for the readers um, because this is something that we discuss a lot with um, among researchers, but it's not always known, uh, you know. And, and I thought that was really important to show, not only to say, oh, well, there is a connection, there's a legacy. No, to show where it is, this legacy, you know, where... So there's a political legacy, but there's also an economic legacy, and uh, there's also a cultural legacy. And I, uh, I mean, it's amazing to see how many construction, how many buildings were, you know, uh, uh, built and financed during the Mongol period in the north. Uh, I mean, in northern Russia. So what is northern Russia today? And um, I, I really wanted to explain how. I mean, it's it's. it's it was important to explain the system behind it. And, uh, and so I worked in the book a lot on this um, system of tax exemptions developed and created by the Mongols and developed. And uh, I think that's, um, that is really a, 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 key, um, a key aspect. And uh, uh, my idea in the book also was to show that, okay, this period that I call, I prefer to call Mongol exchange and tax Mongolica, uh, is a form is a period of globalization clearly a form of globalization and in this form of globalization it's important to understand that the north of Eurasia including what is you know the Russian principalities and including what is Mongolia today and up to northern Europe and this is you know all these area that we called later on the the Anseatic League they, these all this area took the lead. And they really, probably the Mongol launched the whole process, but then they really, uh, really took the lead for uh, almost a century, and that's um, and that benefit to the that was a benefit beneficial to the Russians. Um, I, I really think so. So my idea was like you know to work again in a way on the Silk Roads, but differently, <laughs> you see, and focus on the north. Yes. So uh, you also discuss uh, the the legacy that the, the Mongols left on the Central Asian steppe land. Um, you argue that the empire did not uh, abruptly collapse, as uh, one frequently sees uh, asserted in in history textbooks, um, even with the date, uh, but that its decline was another phase in its constant evolution, one that had a substantial impact on the history of Eurasia. So could you tell us a little more about the, the Mongol legacy um, in, in Central Asia and on the, the people who uh, remained nomadic? Yeah, that was um, um, also something that, um, uh, I mean, I had to struggle with when I, uh, I wrote the book. Uh, it was how to explain the last, um, um, how can I, like the last century of the of the horde and the end of the Mongol Empire, how it transformed? Because uh, I I read a lot about you know dissolution of the Mongol Empire, fragmentation, and so on. It was always very negative. But when I was uh, reading the sources uh, of the you know for the 14, uh, 15 and sixteen centuries, I realized that it was also a time of amazing uh, creativity, political creativity. There were a lot of new things, you know, coming out. So this fragmentation of power would also was clearly um, um, uh, created at the same time um, 
you know, new political imagination, new theories, new new option, new possibilities. And I really wanted to show that to the reader, to the fact that you know this is, um, uh, I mean, the way we we shouldn't see it only as a decline, uh, but we should see also what uh, came out of it. Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, really a challenge, uh, and, and so interesting to work on that. I am, um, so, uh, uh, the idea, so that why I, I actually, I called my last chapter, the younger brothers, because that's the way they show themselves. Now the younger brother, now the younger generation, uh, uh, will take over, you know? So it's, uh, it's, I think really important to, um, emphasize this. And, um, so uh, the, for this period, um, the uh, important um, aspect is the um, in the sources the fact that new uh, names of you know commu- for community or for people appeared in uh, here and there, uh, especially Uzbek and Kazakh, and later on Tatar became important too, and that's really fascinating to see how, how all those names, uh, collective names, appeared and what they mean. So the the, the meaning change, of course, uh, throughout um, centuries, you know, uh, but uh, it was connected to the history of the horde. So the Jotid history was like a um, you know a, a, a matrix. You know, and you see that in the 15th century something's going on, and new there's new shades of power uh, were created, and new names appeared in the sources. So um, the uh, idea for me was to see how uh, to show also that nomads were still very strong. Um, that uh, even if names changed or uh, they were, you know, also uh, adaptation, uh, still nomad themselves as, uh, you know, specific powers, you know, these specific regimes uh, remain very strong in Central Asia. And I wanted to also uh, to show that. So my idea was to show that this legacy, uh, this Mongol legacy um, in the West was... Uh, a legacy for, uh, yes, for the Russian, certainly for the Ottomans, uh, certainly also for the Lithuanian and, and for the uh, uh, Poland-Lithuania, but also in Central Asia for new uh, nomadic powers. So um, uh, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's very important to show uh, the, um, that the nomad had this flexibility, this suppleness in their regime to sort of... Uh, um, creates, um, how can I put like, like, it's like a revival when you think it's over, but no, they just reappeared and they reshaped themselves. And that a concept was developed by, uh, also, um, uh, other friends and colleagues, uh, and especially Becca Hamalins in the, his, um, uh, two books, one on the Comanche and the other one on the Lakota, where it shows also how, you know, these, um, um, nomadic regime are like, you know, shape shifting and how they, uh, adapt themselves to new conditions, uh, and, uh, and yet remain what they are, you know, remain, kept something of their identity. So, uh, I saw that it was, you know, very, um, yeah, very close to what uh, was to the process also uh, in in um, Central Asia and Western Asia, you know, in this 15th, 16th century. So uh, that that's uh, also, I think, something uh, that 
yeah, should be said um, clearly. And um, the fact now uh, also that the, the that's where also the uh, concept of uh, Mongol exchange is important because, yes, in a way, the horde is over. Yes, the Mongol Empire clearly is over. But uh, the legacy of the Mongol exchange is completely there. I mean, the economic legacy and the um, um, knowledge exchange, um, um, also a population exchange, uh, is still, you know, a very, um, you know, uh, very important at that time. So uh, that's what I wanted to show at the end of the book, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think... Um... I think the whole framing of the book is such a welcome addition because, as you've mentioned a few times, um, the Mongol legacy, especially in the broader context of of, of Asian history and, and world history, tends to be emphasized in the uh, what is now China, uh, mm. Iran, Persia, the Islamic world, um, and I, the, the Russian piece is, is really left out. Um, and it's not just an important piece for people who work on Russia, but also for people who work on on world history as a whole, as well as the other uh, regions under Mongol control, because uh, th- that comparative aspect is, I-, I think it lends really a very new perspective um, or a different perspective that, that's worth considering. Yeah, that, that, uh, I completely agree. That's really what I, I had in mind, because I wanted to show, well, to bring the horde back into the Mongol Empire, because for mm-hmm. a certain period of time, it was like you know the Mongols were ad- actually the empire was a toluid. So really, China, Iran, Azerbaijan, this whole area, they were also interesting studies, of course, on the Chagatid, and they were, uh, but we don't have as uh, so many sources on the on the center. And then you know the horde was, oh, they are nomads and they are a bit different and they have their own. You know, they follow their own course, and and I really wanted to bring them back into the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, what what what's next for you? What uh, what's your next project? Well, my next project is um, a, um, a major exhibition on the Mongol Empire, actually. So, oh, wow. working on objects. So, we have this plan here in uh, France. So, it will be actually really organized in Nantes. Uh, in the mm-hmm. museum there uh, of having a big exhibition on the Mon- on Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. And uh, I would like to show through um, um, the, the amazing objects and, you know, archaeological artifacts uh, and miniatures also how, you know, um, the, the spirit of history, how it was uh, rich and, and how you know, to show through object the Mongol exchange. Though in this new mm-hmm. project, I will really work on this notion of Mongol exchange and I will really work on the uh, Mongol Empire as a whole, not uh, only on the West. Uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's very, uh, very interesting for me because it's a new, although I will, I remain a historian, of course, but I think mm-hmm. it should really work with objects, with, you know, textiles, and we, we, we should really talk to art historians and archaeologists because we really, you know, gain a lot of doing this. And I, um, I, I really wanted to show this also to wider audience uh, through objects 
you know, what um, different objects that were for long um, um, attributed to other, you know, to the subject of the Mongols that they were attributed to Chinese or to Persian, you know, um, um, craftsmanship. Now we could, I mean, we could show uh, um, and I, we will show that they are Mongol, in fact, and that the term itself, it's, it's political, it's connected to a wider culture, it's a new aesthetic language, uh, and what mean being a Mongol, you know, and, and, and the Mongol fashion of the um, uh, 13 up to the end of the 14th century. So I think that's something that, you know, it's going to be very exciting and new for me. That's going to be my new project, yes. Okay, uh, and uh, what's the time frame for? Uh, uh, for... Will, I think the uh, the exhibition will be launched at the end of two thousand twenty three, and it okay. will last for almost a year. So um, until the end, almost or mid, or let's say spring two thousand twenty four. So okay. yeah, plenty of time okay, so... for you know people to uh, visit yeah. and see. Yeah, no, and ho- hopefully the borders will, will all be open <laughs> again, yeah, and, and we'll so, be able to travel. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to, to that, definitely. Uh, Marie Favreau's book, The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World, is out from the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. It was published in 2021. Marie Favreau, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was, you know, a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. <laughs>